Well, welcome. Thank you for being here. We're winding down, by the way. I mean, it may not seem this way, but we're going to spend the next five weeks on Revelation. It's a lot of time. And you may say, boy, we could have just done that in one, but I'll let you say that next week. But here we are with James before we go through. Um, I do want to tell you a couple of things. Um, This actually shows up last in Martin Luther's translation of the Bible from the Vulgate into, well, he he used Greek and Hebrew, but um, into German. So in Luther's German translation... James comes last because he said it's a very straw-like epistle. He almost wished it weren't in the Bible at all. So, so controversy in James, and it's true that in the Council of Chalcedon in 381 that James barely made it into the canon. It was one of those books on the fringe, like Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas didn't make it, James did. Um, why did it barely? Why didn't Shepherd of Hermas make it? Why didn't why did James barely make it? I mean, Again, remember, remember, remember the criterion uh, criteria for doing it has to have apostolic authorship. Oh. Shepherd of Hermas didn't. Uh, hey, James, brother of Jesus, saw Jesus, so apostolic. Okay, that's that's fair. Um, had to be widely distributed. Uh, okay, and had to be coherent with everything else and depending on how we choose to read the book it could be as he said and i hate to use the word like faith and works because i just grew up hearing that like to the point i want to throw up but um you could read this book in such a way as to hear it privileging action over i don't want to say belief but like trust if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think, and, and Luther sure believed that. And remember that Luther um, was very, very tightly wound. I mean, he went to confession every time he did anything to the point his confessor was like, let it go. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you know? um, because, and Luther's big worry was, was he ever sorry enough? He was sorry for what he did, but was he sorry enough? that God would forgive him. And so he felt like the answer is no, you can never be sorry enough, you don't have to. So when he reads a book like this, I think it stirs up for him some of his own personality embedded foibles, if, if that makes sense. Um, so that's part of the, the little bit of history. Um, you know, two of our seven sacraments are, are pretty well rooted in James. Confess your sins, Mm -hmm. and is anyone sick? Let the elders anoint them with oil. So that's unction. Um, You didn't have Jesus not going around anointing anybody with oil, and there's no confession going on with with Jesus. So two of the seven show up here almost exclusively. That's maybe helpful to know. With regard to... James, the writer supposedly, the research that I found was that uh, it says that it wasn't written by James, the brother of Jesus, nor James the disciple. Uh, one reason it probably wasn't was because they didn't know how to read or write, and that they were probably peasants who spoke only Aramaic. And uh, it also describes a level of organization in the communities 
that it addresses that would have had to take uh, se uh, several generations to develop. So they really think that this was written between 75 and 120 Common Era. I, I mean, I, I think all that's probably fine. I would say it's real controversial what language James spoke and whether or not he knew Greek. Uh, there's controversy because the area of the Galilee had Sepphoris, which was a, a, a Greek um, as first language city, and artisans and day laborers from Nazareth, which was like a a tiny village maybe were working there. So, we, I mean, we don't know. Jesus himself may have known some Greek. Um, nobody, I've never heard anybody say James the, uh, James the Apostle, like John's brother, because he dies within a couple years of Jesus. So there just wouldn't have been time for him to write it. As with all of our authors, um, you know, authorship is imputed, not signed off on. There's no way that the disciple John wrote the Gospel of John. I mean, there's just, I mean, he would have been 100 years old. So what we normally think is that John's school wrote it, and I think it's very fair actually to think that James, the brother of Jesus, if not dictated, but his school his followers may have written this because it has some very, um, I, I don't want to say Jewish, it's very pharisaical. We usually think of that as a bad thing. A little more explanation. So remember, Jesus has got brothers. We didn't know about sisters, but he definitely has brothers, and they're not cousins. So if you ever hear this bit from the Roman Catholic Church, sorry, it's not put down, that they're cousins, it's, that's just patently false. He has brothers. So James is his biological brother. Of course, that shouldn't be threatening to anybody because, you know, the story sort of says Joseph's not his dad, so James is really just his half-brother, <laughs> okay? Okay. Um, his half-brother James is called James the Just, and he does have this little um, nickname, which is Old Camel Knees, because he spent so much time praying at the Jerusalem temple on his knees that they became, well, calloused, and they looked like a camel's. So if you've seen camel's knees, I mean, they're not attractive things. Um, so James actually goes on, you can read about this in Acts, not to become an important figure, he is the leader of the Jerusalem church, which is the mothership, if, if that makes sense. So when Paul wants to include the Gentiles, ultimately it's going to be James, when you read the book of Acts, this James, who is going to make that decision. He decides in favor of it, um, but he doesn't say anything goes. When you read Acts, he says, restrain from sexual immorality and don't eat any blood. Now, that blood concern is very Jewish. So he lets circumcision go, but he doesn't let consumption of blood go. I said pharisaical because remember that the Sadducees were the people who practiced their faith at the temple and went home. The Pharisees were the people who were looking to involve their everyday living, uh, to have that come from their faith, that there was not just a Sunday ethic, but an everyday of the week ethic. The Pharisees are ultimately the ones we think that develop the 617 commands, the mitzvot, which means commandment, right? You're a bar mitzvah when you're a son of the 
commandment. They're the ones who develop those rules. They extrapolate them from the Torah. The Torah doesn't say, here are the 617 things you must do. They do that so that you can live an ethical life. So here's James in that bit saying, here's how you live an ethical life, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Having been raised as a Catholic in, in this age, and at that time, confession was important. You, you went to confession once a month. I mean, every, first Friday of every month, and, and there were, you had a list of whether you did this or that or the other, and we would all line up. Uh, and, and Vatican II released and allowed a lot of less guilt. I can remember as a child, maybe this sounds foolish, that you lay in bed praying because you say, I did this, I did this, I did this other thing. Um, and so confession was so, so much a center, and it doesn't seem, it's not as critical anymore, or mm -hmm. according to the rules of the church. Mm -hmm. But somehow there's got to be a medium in between in terms of paying attention to your actions. Well, I, and I think this is a really helpful to think about when we think about the sacrament that we no longer call confession, we now call reconciliation. Right. And that's interesting in this. Yes. Um, you know, as a Baptist, we were, we, I mean, at least my own experience was that we were supposed to confess everything to God. And you had, you had to do that. But James says, confess your sins one to another. Isn't that interesting? One to another. And I think that's where the idea that people actually make a physical representation of God when we hear that correctly and when we represent God correctly. And I, I would tell you, I've heard five confessions in my ordained ministry. You know, I do that face to face, not in a booth. And the truth is, you sort of know before you come in what I'm going to say, which is, God forgives you. <laughs> That's not at stake. I'm not going to hear your confession and say, oh my God, you are terrible. You're right. You're going to hell, so you may as well enjoy yourself. I mean, it, it's a prescribed script, and it's the same in church. I mean, actually, we do it every Sunday in the liturgy. <clears throat> But we don't do it one to another. And I think that's why we have this extra opportunity called reconciliation. We do it face to face as a reminder that we're mutual human beings. Um, I don't know. I've always wondered what would happen if we put a confessional in our church. Would I sit in there for two hours by myself or would anybody come? I mean, I'm actually just, I'm sort of curious. And if people came, would they expect me to prescribe penance to them? Or would they just want to say what they're worried about? And I can say, listen, God's not worried about that, but don't keep doing it. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? My more, most recent experience, and, and I'm not sure exactly how the Episcopalian Church does it, but with the Catholic Church, a couple of times a year, there'll be 10 priests are spread out, mm -hmm. and, and people just stand in line and... And, and it's, it's a kind of ritual because you can say just about everything you want to say and they will, I think, pretty much say the same thing back and bless you and, oh, and you leave feeling... Do you get penance? Do they tell you to say uh, so many oh, are... Uh, sometimes, but it's 
nothing. It's not go say ten Hail Marys and twelve Our Fathers or go pray and drink some holy water. And, yeah, and drink, yeah, holy <laughs> water. But it's it's more. But my personal experience, and I don't know how Tim, it's been more and a personal reaffirmation. You are a child of God. Yeah, and good. You're 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 right in life, and and God bless you, and you know, thank you for coming in, not like that, but do you know yeah. what I'm saying? But that's so we do have. It's like getting a counseling session, kind of. We go, we go. Oh, okay, it's out there in the open. Another human being knows that mm -hmm. I'm this common person. And, um, I think that's why we do it in the Episcopal Church face-to-face, -face, and we yes. do it by appointment. And I will tell you, when you have to make an appointment to do it, fewer people do it yeah. than when you're just available. I'm available these hours. You come show up. Yeah. Do you know what and, I mean? Yeah, and, and actually, and in my experience, has been you can do it both ways. I have done ah, it by okay. appointment. Okay. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. And it was before I was having some major surgery. And, was, and it was more like, okay, if I'm going to die on a hospital bed, I want to be, you know, that. Yeah. And I did a personal, and I, I made an appointment. So they'll do it either way. And huh, maybe next Lent, doing Sunday morning before church, <coughs> we'll just have open time for confession. That'd be interesting to see if anybody did it. Because we are all going to die someday. But the point of confession, I think, is not so you're not in a state of sin before you die. It's so that you're not living in a state of sin. And to me, it, it feels there's a sense of um, connection with another human being. And it's, it's through that God, you know, through the... God, it seems like, I'm sure I'm explaining this for you. No, you're doing it fine. But you know what's interesting is none of what we're talking about is in the Bible. Yes. We get this line, confess your sins one to another. We get a couple other things which say God is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and all of our unrighteousness. You know, so confess that, like be honest. Uh, and that will happen. And then the rest of it, tradition's made up. But it says it, it wasn't made a sacrament until the 13th century. Right. And if, don't you think, or it seems to me, that within human relationships, real husband and wife who's had it, you know, a broken marriage and there's been problems, the way to heal is to be honest with each other. There's a third person present with a counselor to, in order to... So it's like very human kind of way to heal, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it takes very seriously, and I think this is why I, I'm glad we've <coughs> changed the title in some ways from confession to reconciliation. Yes, I, I've, I've really done a lot of thinking on this, and I didn't mean I'm an expert by any means, but I have thought about this a lot, and I sort of think, well, I'm positive reconciliation takes two people who are mutually willing to go forward with one another, Short of that, you can't have it. You can only have like forgiveness or confession. So I think that's the whole idea, is we have as a base assumption, God wants a future with us. And when we choose to also want a future with God, we get to have reconciliation. And in a spousal relationship, you know, if two people, if there's a hurt and both people aren't willing, it just didn't gonna work. And hey, in some ways, I don't want to say, like, you have to want reconciliation. There's people who I can't 
have them hurt me again, so I can't have a future with them. And God will fix that after we die, because I can't do it now. Um, but there just won't be reconciliation. There'll only be forgiveness. Right. Which is okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's hop back to James. I mean, I hope that's interesting. And unction is the same thing. Is anyone sick? Have the elders of the church anoint them with oil and pray with them. Now, elder is the word presbyteros. I'm a presbyter. Uh, we use the word priest out of our sort of Anglican um, tradition. But, um, you know, the Methodists call their people elders. Uh, that, that, and the Presbyterians obviously do that as well. Um, so, is anyone sick? But James doesn't say, is anyone dying? He says, are they sick? And then we've had to figure out, okay, there used to be something called last rites and extreme unction. We have neither of those in the Episcopal Church, neither. We have prayers in the time of death, and we have unction. And I will tell you, I give unction to people before surgeries, but I also give unction to people who lost their spouse and are grieving, and golly, like they're just... So is that sickness? It's dis-ease. <laughs> so so I, I offer oil to people who have kids who are alcoholics and they don't know what they're going to do. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I offer. And I have some in my car uh, in case there's anybody out and about. I was at the... I think I was at a post office and somebody was like all wrapped up and then somebody else's kid was having I don't know why they told me this one was like uh you want me to pray for you I've got some oil on the car and they said well yeah I mean it's an interesting thing people actually are pretty open to it whether they're Catholic or not so I think it's that it's got to be that human I've had I've been blessed Methodist before major surgery yeah I've asked the priest to come and and I just feel like you know, if I go, I go, but, yeah, but I'm going to be okay. And, yeah. And it, I think it's certain. This, I think, is part of the sacramental piece is that it's physically embodied. Yeah. There's a human being representing God's voice, and that's imperfect. But just for that moment, they do, right? And we need physical bits. And I actually want to say that's probably a good way to think about the whole book here is how is it do we embody... God's transcendence. There's ways we can do it in our community and with our speech and with our faith behaviors. And I think that's, in some ways, James is about living a sacramental life, embodying a spirituality that is not just transcendent, if that makes sense. One other weird word on that that's not in James. If I ask people to give money to the Interfaith Caring Ministries food pantry, some people would, but I guarantee you I'd get a whole lot less money than I do groceries. Now, it's true that ICM can probably buy groceries more effectively than we can. They can buy from food banks and in bulk and blah, 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 and you can't do that. But I know that if I ask for your money instead of your groceries... A, they'll end up getting less, and B, I think buying groceries for other people while you buy your own is a really interesting way of sort of being in solidarity with people that don't have enough to eat because you're considering while meeting your own needs and wants the needs and wants of other people in a real way. And, and I think that's right. I think that's better than 
sorry, I think it's better than writing checks. I mean, I personally do believe that. Um, Fuller's bags were like that. I think so too. When you hand them, and you hand them, I mean, I, I mean, there's this deep, eye to eyeball. And, I, and I'll tell you what's really interesting. I had somebody within the first two, three weeks of us doing that here, making those available. Somebody said, I used to try to not see those people. And now that I have these bags, I look for them. I'm looking to give them away. And that's a sacramentality of relationship building. You have something real. You feel good in giving, not, you know, torn up about should I. I think that's the kind of stuff, I know James doesn't explicitly talk about that, but in some ways he does. He says, if you see a brother or sister in need and you say, well, God bless you, live in peace, and you don't help them, you didn't do anything. <laughs> and that's, that's, really, that's really interesting. And then the other balance is, Sometimes we think, oh, you know, we need to do all this social help, but we're not the Red Cross, and our job is actually not to be an NGO. Our job is to be an interface between faith and action, but between faith and action. I mean, I think that's really important. Well, I'll just say, I want to say one more thing. Our trip to Jordan, I've never before been on a pilgrimage with other people that are mm-hmm. there for the same purpose. Yeah. And this was really di- different. And Tim and I have done a lot of stuff on our own, but it was really different to have other people that I really didn't know well that were sharing this same experience and and, it, and for the same reason and all. And there was just there was just a very nice sense of that that I ne- I didn't anticipate. It, it's a retreat, yes. and, and that's an interesting thing. As with all trips, everybody goes looking for right. different things, right. but then you have these moments of unity, whether it's... A, I don't think it's just because you have a cooking class. I actually think it's because you have prayer and the Eucharist. Oh, yeah. And so that's sort of this anchor that... And I will tell you, church people are on their best behavior on these trips. Like, they're really nice to each other because... Um, you know, we, we know we're like churchy people, so we're supposed to be good. But And that's where actually, I don't want to say travel's a sacramental act, but it, but it is. I mean, and, and in some ways it's exclusive because not everybody can afford to go. And not everybody's in health to go and whatever. But, um, but there is something really neat about doing it in community and with different intentions. I mean, I, that's why I continue to want to do it. So now how about James and y'all? <laughs> I read James once before because I was told it was about practicing the faith, and I thought that was a good idea. And now that you've read it again, what do you think? Uh, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> but, uh, but to me, that's an important part of your faith. The better you live it. Yeah. Well, I think that if you just follow James, your more compass is going to be right on. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't, you know, if 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 you just follow what what he outlines and, and believe in his way, I think I think you have made. You think that it's, it covers it all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just really have a hard time. Uh, it, James is very clear. Faith without good works is Um because he's very clear here about that. That, uh, like you said a while ago, 
you believe that you don't do anything. I mean, you yeah. go to church on Sunday and you don't live that way. So how could... Um, it's interesting that Martin Luther, he must have had some kind of serious problem to focus on the works on faith alone. Um, but anyway... Um, well, Martin Luther actually believed all of our works were bad because we are utterly depraved of God's image and likeness. So he, he believed we could do nothing good. But that's why our works are no good. So it's all about grace because it's all about God's gift to us and our response is, is worthless. I mean, that's sort of what he decided. He also was believed in predestination yeah. as well. So you just have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is this, I really like James because what he's basically saying is that you you act as you believe. In other words, yeah. we, we incorporate the teachings of Jesus in our lives and God works through us a lot of times because of that and uh, it's just like, put your money where your mouth is. You know? One of the little note here in this Bible is says verse uh, chapter 1 20, verse 22 that this is the main theme of the letter be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves well maybe that's a point where people get hung up uh, because then but you go in farther it says well you know faith and works go together I'm not crazy about the whole be happy in your suffering I mean I know what he's saying yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Sure. Well, I've never managed it. Yeah, me either. <laughs> well, he doesn't say to be happy. This is important. Consider it joy. Because I didn't think happiness can withstand suffering, but I think joy can. I had a Catholic professor in, in, in um, Atlanta who said repentance is joyful sorrow. I think he's right. Um, and, and I listened to an article, I, I read, listened to, I listened to it on tape, um, an article even just yesterday that's this great reminder about what hope is and that hope is in fact not a feeling at all. It is a commitment and a practice to setting goals and doing the necessary work to achieve those goals and it's predicated on the ability that I can do that work. So I had a kid, uh, still have a kid, who told me he wanted to be a professional soccer player when he grew up. Well, he hadn't played soccer in three years. That isn't hope, because that's preposterous, right? That's, that's wishing. So this book, this article said hope is not about wishes at all. It's about attainable, smart goals, essentially. And sure enough, hopeful people aren't born, uh, what they do is they develop resilience through struggle. And this big article was talking about how kids can't solve their own problems anymore, and the very people who say that are the ones who solve their kids' problems <laughs> for them. And so the thing you have to do is let your kids struggle, as hard as that is, because through struggling and working it out, they learn how to be resilient and be hopeful. They don't feel it, they practice it. And so that's an interesting thing to, to have in the background here, right, is that um, trials, setbacks, having to work it out is what really develops not just your perseverance, but it develops your 
hope. And is hope faith? I didn't think they're equitable, but I, but I do think in some ways maybe uh, they go along together. And this is where I think as a kid and a teenager and in my early 20s, I really struggled because I thought James was talking about how I'm supposed to feel, but, but I'm, I'm really convinced he's not. He's talking about what I'm supposed to do regardless of my feelings. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, it's best when you're generous and you're cheerful about it. But, I, but I've sort of decided, actually, like, um, if you don't feel like doing it and you do it anyway because you believe it's important, that might be better than doing what you feel like. <laughs> I mean, this is definitely part of marriage, right? Is that you do, you don't always feel like doing what your partner would most enjoy. It, it may actually be very difficult for you, and that's a mark of a healthy relationship, not a bad one, right? I mean, that you, without the feeling, muster up what you need to do. Um, and, and I think we could read James, actually, the whole book that way, that regardless of our feelings, we're meant to do these practices, and if it's harder for you, all the better. Because <laughs> that develops perseverance and hope and resilience, right? I mean, I think, I, I do think there's all this other business that we lump on here like, oh, God enjoys it more, and we're not just doing these things because we'll make God happy so we'll have a better afterlife. I think if we could strip that all away, I think we sort of say, listen, I don't always feel like sharing with people who come here and ask me for rental assistance. In fact, I, I pretty much never feel like doing it. And I always say, why on earth am I doing this? Because this is a scam or this, I'd rather spend the money on this or that. But I will tell you, I always write a check. I do, even if I think it's now, if they come back, I say, no, you already got your check. And I'm not a once-a-year guy. I'm like once a lifetime, you know, because funds are just so limited. But whatever the story is, I'm some, if, just to assuage myself, sometimes they'll, they'll say, well, I can whatever. And I'm like, no, that's between you and the Lord, you know. So, you know, I'll let, I'll let that be on your conscience whether you need this or not. But on my own, you've asked, and here, here, here you get something. Um, I'm really cynical. I, I'm not always nice to these people, but I do always give them a check. And um, I'm not necessarily proud of that, but I, but I can rest there. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's very difficult for me because um, often you help one person and you get four or five of their friends asking for stuff too, and you just start to, you start to wonder. But I don't give out enough, I don't give out big enough checks that this is rife for major abuse. And in some ways, like I say, I, I think, I don't know about accountability, but obviously they're accountable for what they do with the money or if they need it, but I think I'm accountable for whether or not I choose to practice generosity. Choose. I don't feel like it. <laughs> Anybody else? Big pushers or reactions to James or portions of this that really stood out to you? Well, I like what you said about tongue, because I think that gives you more oh problems. Oh my About the tongue. Oh. Yeah, you can get more problems with that than anything else. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think one of our most popular vessels of humor is sarcasm. 
and and I think James sort of says uh, there's no room for sarcasm, which is something that we rejoice in. Now I learned this as a teacher. There's no room for sarcasm in the classroom, and um, I I I thought most of the time that's true because it makes kids not feel safe and I, I didn't realize at the time that that's actually always true I thought I could pull it off where other people couldn't and of course that's just that's just wrong um, I know one person well who is a funny person um, and he never seems to make jokes at other people's expense but he's but he's funny and um, boy that's that's sort of like like a like a virtuous hero to me because you know jokes at other people's expense, James sort of categorically says no to. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, there was um, this is something that I've been uh, pondering about a lot, was that um, when he talks about warning to rich persons and all this other stuff in chapter 5, and, um, you know, says, um, uh, you, you have... Uh, come now, you rich, reap and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. You yeah. the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have killed a righteous person who does not resist you. Now, I don't think it was in here, but somewhere I read not too long ago is that, you know, we shouldn't even bother praying for people like this. Because when people are so committed to their own comfort and wealth and things of that sort to the, to the uh, and not con uh, concerned about helping the others uh, they're sort of like they're frozen in their situation you know we, we can look at things in Washington today too and we see there that you know I mean the situation is what well, doesn't get better so just let it run its course and hopefully we'll be free of it. So, I mean, have you read, I mean, should we not pray for people who are just so far gone that not waste our time on them? I mean, do you ever waste your time considering somebody else affirmatively? Is that ever a waste of time? Well, for most people it's not. <laughs> But for people who are so blind. Well, no, I think I think we I think we need to continue to pray for each and every one of us um, because to not do so would be to write somebody off, and I don't want to be that person to write somebody off. I think that's, I mean, I think that's probably what my gut says. And then, of course, I always think what is the point of prayer anyway? Is it that God will make somebody do what I think they should do? <laughs> 
is prayer um, a way in which we try to get God to do what we want? Or is prayer more like a consideration of God's presence in all people and situations? It, it, it's the lateral. Well, it's different things to everybody, but you know. But I did sort of learn I'm supposed to pray for people by name and condition. So God, this person's sick, or listen, there's this baby, and and they they have this you know congenital birth defect, and let's just pray for them. Which means what? God, let them live, fix it. Is that how God works? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I will tell you, there's this story where uh, Moses gets, you know, the whole Torah, and God says, look at those people in that calf. I'm going to kill them all. (laughs) And Moses says, no, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) That'll really damage your reputation. You you should consider a different thing. And then God says, well, fine, Moses, I'll do what you say. So in that story, prayer is changing God's mind. But most of us don't believe that prayer does that, but we pray like it does, or we wouldn't be asking for all the stuff. So I, is, is prayer just a comfort for us? Well, because I've had a, a real problem um, coming to terms with prayer. I've always prayed, but... After studying more than I've ever studied before and reading more, it's, I mean, I feel like we're here on earth and things are going to happen and whether we pray or not, it's going to happen. And so what's the point of prayer? I think, I mean, I know faith is is there. You know, you have faith in God that he's going to give you comfort through your issues. Yeah. But does prayer, do you pray? Do you really, does it work? Here, here's, you I know, think. There's prayer, tra- yeah. uh, uh, what is it, pa- prayer, tra- prayer, training. Prayer, training. Tra- no, no, people, no, prayer, 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 and and then I'm I'm bombastic, you know this already. So I used to have this practice that I was supposed to spend X amount of time every day in prayer and pray for people by name. And of course, I ended up with this really long list, and it kept getting longer because I wasn't supposed to forget the people at the front of the list because I didn't know if the outcome, the proper outcome, had happened. And um, actually, really early in my ordained ministry. I was doing something like this while I would walk my dogs. I mean, that's what I was thinking about. And it was very dark in the morning, and I would do this for half an hour every day. And this one woman was on my list. She, um, she really was a, a lovely lady. I mean, really, really gracious. Really gracious. And she had this catastrophic news that she had stage 4 ovarian cancer. Now, that's catastrophic because that's the kiss of death. You don't, you don't respond to that. It's just a question of how long you want to live. And it was, I mean, she had a tumor the size of a grapefruit. So, and I'm a little jaded because I visit people and I see people die and I'm around machines and all of that business. And, um, you know, I've sure seen, and I know that um, 
chemotherapy kills people probably more than cancer does. And what an awful death that is to, to be sick all the time. Um, so I was thinking, you know, she, this lady decided she was going to fight it. And I think she decided she was going to fight it because her kids weren't raising her grandkids right and she wanted to be the stopgap. And I think that's a noble thing, but I also think that's out of your power to do, right? So here I am, and I'm just saying, like, God, help this lady just accept she's going to die. <laughs> and this is really strange. It doesn't happen to me often. But I, like, heard this voice back, and I don't think it was... Ex it's not like I heard it with my ears, and, and I'm not convinced. I, I don't know, but the voice back was... Why do you get to pick what's best for her? And I answered, because I've seen people die from chemotherapy, and I happen to know that this goal that she's got, you know, of raising her grandkids is out of her control, ultimately. So there's nothing to live for. And again, I got this voice back. Why do you get to pick what's best for her? It's her life. So I had this, I mean, at the end of the day, what do I really think? I probably had a dialogue with myself, but I'm really sure I had it in God's presence. So what did I end up doing? God, I hope she can figure out where to really put her energy and that she's not divided, and whatever it is, she decides to do it. Now, initially, I had to say, God, give her clarity whether she's going to live or die so she knows how to plan accordingly. Um, that was the intermediate step. But I think the thought was really about helping her have clarity where she was going to put her energy. I mean, how, not, not her future, but where she was going to put her present. And I'm not convinced that God made that happen. But what I think I realized was that instead of prayer being this formal time when I come with petitions, prayer for me has become an awareness of God being in the room. Because most of my life, I'm not aware of that. Who is prayer for? Probably for me, more than anything else. But I do think there is something really amazing about the community when we consider one another affirmatively. You know, I, this, I used to think this was hogwash, but Buddhist, there's this Buddhist practice um, people that you have a difficult time forgiving. You try to imagine them and with the words, may they be free from pain. May they be free from suffering. And oddly enough, um, I do think that does something for you. I think that changes the way we relate to people. And by us changing us, I'm sure that changes them because we relate to them differently. And then I do think there is something about the communion of saints setting our, our, our thoughts, our mindfulness on other people and essentially wishing them to be free from pain. I feel very comfortable praying for people to die. God, help them to die, help them to know when it's time and to go without fear. And that's about being free from pain. I, I don't know that that's magic, like God makes it happen, but I do think it might help them. 
Because I think at the quantum level, I'm not a <laughs> physicist, but at the quantum level, we're all connected. This, this thing called quantum entanglement. Um, and, and I think prayer is actually the moment where we sort of take that entanglement in. And we sort of do it in God's presence. So I've had some really great prayers that were wordless, that were outdoors in beautiful situations. I just felt connected with the universe. I've had some wonderful prayers, again, that changed the way I treated people and changed the way I viewed myself. And I've had prayers that I felt like, you know, lift, actually helped to lift somebody up. So I hope that's an okay answer. Long-winded. That's good. That's a good answer. I, I have found my, my prayers have changed, mm-hmm. and um, I give a lot more thanks uh, mm-hmm. to begin with. But, and then um, I pray for people's comfort and peace, for yeah. them to find peace and comfort, and, yeah. uh, especially people that I know that are very ill. Um, and that's how I've changed my prayer. Yeah. Um, or ask, you know, him to, or for me to be able to find ways to help these people. Mm-hmm. So that's how my prayers have changed rather than asking for them to be cured or. I, I want to say I resonate with those changes, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm a prayer guru, but, but I resonate with that, and, and I feel like that's enriched my own faith life. I did read a really interesting book called Never Pray Again, and it was written by some actually kind of evangelicals, and I, it, I mean, it's one of those saucy titles. But it sort of, sort of said, a lot of times we pray for God to help the poor. So instead of doing that, go help poor people. Yes. <laughs> and let that be your prayer. And in some ways, I think James pushes us to do that. Instead of just asking God to take care of it, go ahead and ask while you embody that. Don't just ask God that your brother won't be so mad at you. Go work that out and let that be your prayer. I mean, that's an interesting, interesting thing, I, I, I think. And, and in that sense, I think prayer does influence the world. I, I like, I read the book that we had when I was taking the, the course in, uh, about prayer. It's about praying for things that seem hopeless. Well, just by any kind of prayer. <laughs> what she said that helped me. Uh, I mean, if you're praying for something far away, and you know, is that in every action or inaction or situation in the world, there are little things that are more positive than other things. You know, there's some more positive there somewhere, and that your prayer lends energy to that which is positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is an energy exchange a lot of times. Sometimes it's a very quiet, subtle one. But especially when you get a group of people together to pray, like to, to lay on hands for somebody who's going on a into a hospital or something like that, it, it's it's uh, you know the fact that all those people are praying for you is uplifting. Mm-hmm. The fact that that people are showing their care for you. Yeah, that's where comfort comes in, where the mm-hmm. you know, just knowing someone is thinking of you mm-hmm. and. Um, And that's why I think anointing with oil is so powerful, mm-hmm. because it's duly connecting. Yes. 
it's it's a physical connection as well. So it it does at the macro level what's happening at the quantum level anyway. I, I do think prayer is really interesting in James because you know I um, I have got lots of opinions and you, that's not new for me to tell you that. And one of the opinions I continue to share in church is that I just am a little bit confused with how it is we talk about our political leaders and with people who have viewpoints different from our own. And I think James really would take us to task on that. I mean, I recently was reading a Facebook post, and this is why I hate that I'm on Facebook in some ways and that I'm friends with parishioners because sometimes I read what they write and I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) I don't know what to do. But there was somebody who made this post that said they needed a new swear word to describe um, a particular group of people because the F word wasn't strong enough and and they needs a new word. And I read that and I thought like, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, because the thing is, and this is what I appreciate so much about the prayers of the people, we didn't pray for our people to win. We pray for people to pursue justice. And, you know... There's a book we had to read called Praying Shapes Believing, and I'm positive that's right. If we pray for outcomes, we believe, we know. Listen, I didn't know about trade agreements, but I sure hope the people who know and have influence will pause to think about justice. I, I know I don't like a lot of Donald Trump, but let's be honest, none of us knows him personally. You don't know what that guy's like. You've never met him. How can we decide we know him? I don't know anything about Madonna, except she's a different person every time she makes an album. So who is she really? She may not even know. Or it could all be engineered to make money. Because people do that. They have stage personae. And um, so to, to pretend like we know somebody based on their media, well, it's like worse than presumptive. It's just foolish. And... How is it helpful to say, like, oh, I hate the president? I mean, if, if your critique is he's hateful and you hate him, then actually you're twins. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, and I, it's funny you can say this, like, hey, we don't pray for candidates, we pray for justice. And in the same morning in church, someone will pray for Donald Trump. And, you know, I like, okay, it's fine. And I don't know what that person means. Actually, I do know what they mean. Um, but that's okay. Like, I can't be mad about that. But the, the question is, what do I do? What do I do about that? And honestly, when somebody affronts my values, I think prayer is probably the most important thing. And honestly, like, why am I so mad at that person? Well, because they're not doing what's right. Okay, but that happens all the time. So why am I so mad about that? And prayer actually becomes a way to to be mindful about myself so that I don't be reactive and do stuff and think that God's on my team instead of an opportunity to be a little reformed. I know prayer matters that way. God, why am I so mad and then paying attention to, to your own answer and chasing that down with the idea that, hey, we didn't, it's not helpful to be so mad. It's not helpful. It's okay to be disappointed. I mean, listen, life's disappointing. 
lots of the time. And life exceeds expectations. What do we choose to focus on? Praying shapes believing. I mean, I think... Sorry, I was real preachy just now. I like what you said about gratitude, because I think with aging, and, and you know, when you're a little kid, you pray for this and that and the other, and even as a teenager, you continue like, oh, I hope this guy asked me after the But as you age, you recognize the graciousness of what God has given you through life, and not just you, what's there just getting up in the morning and listening to a bird sing or something just so simple and you become very, very consciously aware of that. Um, I wish I had discovered it younger. Yeah, yes. Well, I would tell you this, and I think this is right because I'm doing this um, couples therapy certification right now because I do enough premarital counseling that I just need more skills. And that's really different set of things that I feel like I've ever heard and, and biologically um, you know we're hardwired evolutionarily to look for negatives more than positives it's hardwired because negatives are threats and we're always on the lookout survival wise for a threat but um, when our frontal cortex develops I mean that's really what makes us mammals <laughs> we, we, um, we can retrain our brain to look for positives more than we look for negatives and that's really what a gratitude practice does and voicing appreciation particularly within couples that's what it does is retrains your brain instead of it, it's natural to look for negatives I mean that's in our DNA that we look for negatives more um, but we, we, we can change that and that's what gratitude practices ultimately do and I think it's really interesting coming back to James, right? That there's this whole section about not judging other people. Don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against their sibling or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. I mean, essentially, when you judge your brother, you're judging God. Which is really interesting because I feel very comfortable in judging my brother. And I think I'm usually right. <laughs> That's the sad bit. <laughs> So, so there's that really interesting thing to really enter into prayer, which is maybe a conversation with myself in God's presence about. Why am I doing that? Well, because it makes me feel slightly better than I already feel about not feeling good about myself. Okay, how can I change that? I can practice gratitude, especially with the people I like the least. Anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Gosh, that's a terrible line, isn't it? That's where we get the, thing, the things we've done and the things we've left undone. There it is. Tough. Tough stuff. Sorry I'm being luxury. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. That's why we're here. <laughs> what about that lady that you were praying for? Did she... Yeah, she took the treatment. She lived a couple more months and she died. Oh, so... Actually, she had like a short-lived miraculous comeback. She did. She, she, um, she was upright. Of course, she lost all her hair. And I'm pretty sure her, it was really painful to her body, but um, maybe it didn't hurt as much because that's where she'd set her goal. I mean, that's a really interesting thing. When you've got a goal and you know it's going to be tough, pain doesn't hurt as much when it's a surprise and not in your goals. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people who run marathons with stress fractures in their feet, 
and that has to hurt like awful, but they do it and, and the pain doesn't, because they, they're not thinking about the pain, they're thinking about their goal. And we all have that in some area of our lives. There's things we do perpetually that would drive other people crazy, but we've become acclimated to it because that's ultimately our hope or our faith or our practice. So, so it was, it was kind of cool, and then it was just really sad when she died, particularly because she'd gone through all of that, but, you know, that's what she chose to do, so maybe it wasn't that sad. Actually, she'd attained her goal of initially bouncing back. That's, you know, that was the thing. At the end of the day, it's just a tough loss, because, sure, right, she, um, she we all going to die. She just was a really nice person. It was really, it's really sad when nice people die, because... Uh, uh, the world needs more nice people. <laughs> Any other thoughts? We didn't talk about favoritism. There is an interesting bit about favoritism. Um, you know, a lot of us would like to presume that we're not biased or whatever, but, um, you know, the, the DOD came out in Harvard. There's this book called Blind Spot you can read, mm-hmm. and uh, it turns out that um, your eye has a has a blind spot. So there's a place you can you can take a book and you can move it, and there's a certain point where you won't see the book anymore. You'll see around the book, but the book's in front of you. Like it's just super strange. You you have this blind spot, and you don't know that. I mean, I didn't know that. And that the premise of the book is we all have these blind spots about and. I, I don't want to just say like racism or sexism, but in general we do have blind spots to those things. And so someone developed this really easy test that you can take. You can do this online um, that helps you evaluate whether or not you have a blind spot. I sure like to believe that I'm not prejudiced, but um, the way this works actually is you have to make equations. Like if you say bugs bad, flowers good, and you have to make those ranks. Well, you already believe that, so that would be really easy. But if you have to go rank bugs good, flowers bad, you're not gonna, it's going to take you a lot longer to do that because you're going to have to consciously think about it. So what it reveals is what is subconscious and what's conscious. I don't know if that makes sense. So if you have to take an inventory that says white people good, black people bad, the researcher says you're going to fly through that one compared to when you have to say black people good, white people bad. And that reveals an unconscious blind spot. Listen, when you think about it, you can make the informed decision, but those subconscious decisions travel something like 7,000 times faster than conscious decisions, which is why police shoot people. Because that's how fast it travels. I don't know if that makes sense. And police have biases, well, frankly, based on their experiences like we all do. So there's this interesting thing where our brain likes to develop in general rules. It's called heuristic reasoning or rules of thumb. That's a terrible word because that's about you know beating your spouse. But um, rules of thumb, our brain is hardwired to do that. And in general, in our experience, those are true. But they're not always true, and that's the hard thing for us to get our heads around, is that our, 
our prejudices and our biases and our stereotypes might generally be true in our own experience, but they're not always true. And if we act like they're always true, we trample people down in support of this sort of stuff, whether it's economics, like James talks about, or other kinds of favorites. What is a website where someone can take this? Oh, it's in my blogs. I can forward it to you. Um, There's a blog coming out about it soon if you're on that blog. If you're on on the website list and you don't delete these things, there's one of these things that comes out every morning about Luke. Uh, well, I can just say, I'll send it to you because that's presumptive of me that you have to come through all this. I used to get Luke every day and I was reading it and I just realized I haven't been getting them. Yeah, looking at Luke. Looking, yeah, I, I haven't been getting it lately. I do. I, I, now I'm thinking, I'm not sure. I was. We send I was them every day. Well, I'll tell you when I get done, I'll just go ahead and bind it because it's the whole book of Luke. Um, oh. It's coming all the way through Easter, in fact. Um, well, I love, I love them, and I read them every morning. But just when you mention yeah. it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, and I, 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 I like reading from a book. I, I, I'm not good reading. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna make a book. If I have to independently publish it, I'm gonna make a book. That was actually one of my Lenten goals was to make my own book. Print this off, honey. Print this off because then I can hold the page. I can write on it. I can do stuff. Yeah. I don't like reading screens either, but I have it in there. That's that's why I call them on. But I'll send you that link. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. But it is an interesting thing. I will tell you that um, you know, people approach rectors differently from associate rectors, and people approach male priests differently than they approach female priests. And people often approach priests differently according to how we're dressed, or whether or not we have particularly jewelry, or uh, what's on our skin. I get lots of different approaches for that. People are sometimes radically dismissive, or radically prepared to give me power I didn't deserve. Interesting stuff. You know, there was an t- article in the Chronicle this morning about Pope Francis that he, what it basically was saying, he was saying, is that uh, a lot of the bishops are asking that women be given more power in the church and le- leadership roles, and and Francis is saying yes, that they women deserve that uh, justification or. Uh, whatever, uh, and uh, that uh, women need to have a, a more positive leadership role, etc. And uh, so I think, you know, um, I was surprised to read that, but I was glad to see it, and also to learn that the bishops were asking for more women in leadership roles. And it's just a matter of time until the Catholic Church will start ordaining women, but, but I mean by a matter of time, you know, maybe 50 years or so, yeah, you know, yeah. but there'll be married priests first. Yeah, there's got to be married priests. There already is, and that's what I don't understand, because because the Eastern Rite churches, under the Catholic Church, the priests can be married. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well actually you can be married with children and be a Catholic priest now. Yeah. The yes. trick is you get ordained Episcopalian yeah. and then right. you go over from yeah. there. Or Lutheran. Or Lutheran. And I th- oh, but only Evangelical Lutheran. Oh, okay. If you're Missouri Synod, no. Um, 
Gloria Day is Missouri Synod, so we don't have uh, communion with them, just heads up. Yeah, um, nor would they with the Episcopal Church. Um, so, I don't know, it's one of those hard bits, because in order to do that, what the Pope would have to do is say, another Pope who spoke ex cathedra was wrong, and when you do that, you undermine your whole tradition. Like, you undermine your own ability to speak hey, hey, ex cathedra. Wait a minute, but speaking from the chair didn't come until, what, 1876? Oh, no, 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 it's much older than that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, remember, this is one of the... Um, the Counter-Reformations is the Council of Trent, and that's where the Pope tried to prove that the, Pope's, the Pope is stronger than Scripture by making the Apocrypha Scripture. It never was, but that was the Pope's proof that tradition is greater than Scripture itself. Yeah, well, that's a mistake, but the Church has always had a problem with, uh, you know, the early church had women priests and bishops and so forth until Constantine, and they clergy uh, went with the, the way the Romans did things. But the battle about women has been going on for centuries. And uh, yeah, I agree with you about the Pope, and I never agreed with that myself. But anyway, uh, it, it it has to come. But you know, to me, as a Roman Catholic, the women, the woman role. I, because I went to Catholic school, the nuns were very instrumental in my child's performance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very instrumental. Um, and those women, they, they're my heroes. I mean, they're Sister Mary Rector and some of the other nuns. And through my parents, my grandparents, my mother, uh, and I don't know if it's just a personal thing, but I think it's been informal. It's not formally said, you know, but it's informal. From my experience as a Catholic, but the women were pretty and very powerful and important in what happens in, in right close to you. Yeah, and that becomes, I think, a way that you could consider James James's discussion of favoritism. And again, there there is what's interesting, right, is that there's most women have a patriarchal bias. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's and well. And when I think of the Blessed Virgin and her position in the Catholic Church, my goodness, if you go into a Catholic home, you had the Blessed Virgin before you had Jesus on the cross was too sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, her, her there, praying. Yeah, is, there, there is a very interesting history book called The Creation of Patriarchy, um, which shows how all this stuff happened. Yeah, but there used to be many before, before that. Yeah. Well, we, I need to get up. No, no, I, I've been trying to bring it up that is part of the subject is that favoritism, you know. And um, maybe just a few other bits to highlight in James. Um, I don't know if you care about this, but the chapter one is, is actually called the epitome of James because it's a concise summary of everything he goes on to develop. So, I, you know, if, you, if you're interested in this, when you read chapter one, he outlines everything he's going to go back and address. Uh, and um, one of his conclusions in chapter one is that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being polluted by the world. I mean, so, so that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty strong criterion for uh, whether or not our faith is properly practiced. Remember, it doesn't literally mean widows and orphans. Those are the people 
who had the least amount of, I don't want to say power, but ability to protect or look out for themselves. Um, it may not be that widows are in that condition now. I, I actually would say I, I don't think that's the case, that widows in the United States belong in that category. Um, orphans is a funny word. We don't usually use that. I think probably foster kids is probably belong there. <laughs> um, and then, and then you, you have to decide who else belongs in that group. Um, and again, that, that's a criterion for faith. Notice what James says that we've been trying to do really the whole time, the whole study, is it contrasts two kinds of wisdom. And, and maybe in some ways what James is contrasting is knowledge versus wisdom, you know, like we did way back when we talked about Proverbs, but that there's wisdom that comes from above, and then, frankly, there's shrewdness. <laughs> and we often call shrewdness wisdom, but it's not. And that's, that's an interesting uh, thing, uh, because the wisdom that comes from above is full of mercy, and shrewdness rarely is. I mean, I just, just thinking about that, James is highlighting that, that difference. And that's one of those pieces that it is um, often missing. There's a, there's a process in um, chapter 4 that's sort of interesting, um, that reads, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and God will lift you up. And um, I did hear an interesting commentary on this, oh, I think when I was in college, that sort of suggested that this is actually like a process of repentance, and it's in steps. So submitting yourself to God is the first step, and then the second is resisting the devil. Now remember, this word in Greek... Diabolos means slanderer. <laughs> That's really important to remember. James no way has in mind the axis of evil that is um, a spiritual being opposed to God, but rather the slanderer. What is Because it's interesting, he goes on to talk about not slandering other people. <laughs> um, slander, right, is circulating information about people that isn't true. In Spanish, the word diablo is devil. It is, mm -hmm. but I want you to know, in Greek, yes. diabolos means mm -hmm. slanderer. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I didn't know that. And the reason that's important, that's in my Lenten blogs too, is that, um, you know, Baptist is a Greek word. It means dunker. Yes. But we decided we're going to just call it baptism because we don't dunk, we sprinkle. <laughs> Satan means accuser, but we decided, no, Satan's like this thing. But it means accuser. It's not a proper name in the Bible, and devil's not a proper name either. And accusation and slander are, are, are uh, definitely in the same bed together. So in that sense, they're interchangeable. And what's interesting, right, is um, this idea that slander is something that draws us away from God. So when we resist slander, we're able to close the gaps between us and God. Slander are those things we buy into that aren't true. Like, you suck. 
we often buy into that. And when I think I suck, there is a larger gulf between God and myself. So resisting slander is about humility. That's where you get it to the end. Humble yourselves and God will lift you up. Humility is not about uh, deprecation. Humility is being exactly who God made you to be, no more and no less. We usually err on the no more side and are very happy to put ourselves down, but that's not humility, that's masochism. So resisting slander is slandering other people, but resisting slander about ourselves. And I did hear this really interesting thought once again yesterday. I was reminded of it as I was listening to this book again. Um, quantitatively, the absence of scarcity is what? Abundance. Yeah, it's right. But this book says actually qualitatively, the opposite of scarcity is just being enough. And this author sort of says scarcity and abundance are two sides of the same dysfunctional coin. Because um, in general, when we think about abundance and we think about scarcity, we're always on the edge of what will I do next instead of being enough. And I think, I think that's an interesting way of considering humility is neither about scarcity nor abundance, but being enough. Well, that's the end of my fun with James. <laughs> um, sorry, thanks for, thanks for being here and participating. And next week we'll take on, I think, arguably the most understood book in the Bible. And I hope, I hope we come to a better understanding of it. We'll be doing that the next five weeks. Next week we'll read just Revelation, the whole bit. And then we'll come back over four weeks and dial in to four sections. So, see you then.